You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Tom Sawyer, the COO of Cognitivity, C-O-G-N-E-T-I-V-I-T-Y, Cognitivity.com. So, Tom, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Yeah. So, tell me about uh, Cognitivity. Sounds like it has to do something with thinking. So, uh, what's the premise of the company? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, we, we, we spun out from uh, research in Cambridge University in the UK. Um, but really what we're about is, is answering a, a, a massive problem there is in the healthcare business at the moment, um, in that the diagnosis of dementia is so problematic and so poorly done around the world that one in two people um, never receive a diagnosis. And those that do tend to receive it too late to be able to be helped by uh, existing treatments. Okay. So, so the answer to this really is to do with being able to detect much better, much earlier. So what we had uh, developed is, is a platform which allows the detection in small changes in cognitive functions, so your ability to, to process information um, that can be you know, easily scaled and distributed um, and, and solves this problem in that it's able to capture the kinds of early cognitive signs, uh, decline signs that are associated with dementia. So yeah, what's the current state? How is dementia um, first observed and then confirmed by diagnosis and how would you do it differently? Sure. So, so what currently happens at the moment is it's a bit of a, a kind of a, a mess if we're looking at it as, as a global situation in that there are lots of different ways of doing it. But generally speaking, what happens at primary healthcare, so this is when you go to your family physician, um, is that they will be listening out for, for signs that you've got some sort of um, memory problem, generally speaking. And it's often reported by a relative. So if your wife or, or, or you know, or somebody says, I think I'm worried about them, they're not really performing very well, they're very forgetful, that tends to be the, the first flag, okay, that something might be wrong. Now, the physicians then, generally speaking, have some fairly kind of short and, and crude pen and paper tests, which just ask you, you know, a few questions, some basic memory stuff. Um, and then on the back of that, the physician says, okay, well, maybe I'll refer you to see a specialist for this. Now, the problem with this at the moment is, is A, that it's rather ad hoc. So it's only really when it comes to the attention of the physician that they would even do something about it. But also the main problem is, is that the, the time at which that kind of diagnosis happens uh, tends to be really late in the process, if it happens at all. So these tests that they're using are, are really not very sensitive, kind of crude, and they have a number of problems, which I'll, I'll go into a little more in a, in a moment. But um, yeah, they, they rely also on, on self-reporting as well. So what you need to do is to get sort of a grip on this, if there's some issue happening way before it presents itself as memory problems. Okay, so so you really need to be able to see it, you know, a good 10, 15 years earlier when people 
before people uh, show heavy impairment. Well, how are you supposed to do that if the uh, symptoms are barely there or if uh, the person thinks, uh, I'm fine? You know, with, yeah. that, until it becomes a problem, most people don't take action. You know, I mean, everyone's like that. So what do you do? Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it. So the trick then really is to expose people to some sort of testing, which is which is um, able to pick up on these, these earlier earlier stage um, loss of, of capability, and particularly in cognition. So, um, you know, the way that we do it is, is that a test that you can take very, very simply, which shows these, these early stages of cognition, it can be used much like a, a blood pressure test, for example. So the idea with a blood pressure test is that you are able to get some clinically meaningful information about a patient um, before it develops into a big problem. So you, if you're showing a slightly elevated blood pressure, it doesn't mean you're going to drop dead from a heart attack. It means that your physician is able to say, okay, well, you know, what's the problem here? Um, can we explain it? If we can't explain it, we'll refer you to a cardiovascular specialist in plenty of time for them to be able to help you. So likewise, for, for, for cognitive function, um, if you're able to pick up on the first stages of cognitive impairment, so if someone's not quite where you'd expect them to be in terms of their cognitive function, you can then say, okay, well, can we explain this in terms of are they on medication, are they alcohol impaired, you know, are they suffering from depression, or, or a number of other factors which may explain it. If it can't be explained by the physician, then they will then refer you to, to a memory clinic or a specialist in, in cognitive function really nice and early so that they can get plenty of time to work out what it is and then devise a treatment plan which will really slow down the decline. Well, so what are some examples of the various types of dementia? What are treatment plans? You know, if it's caught three or four years earlier than it normally would be caught, you know, will that do anything? Or will that just, you know, make the person feel uh, doomed for longer? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very good question. So, now, the, the situation in, in diseases like Alzheimer's, and we use ex- Alzheimer's as an example here, um, there are no disease-modifying drugs available for Alzheimer's yet. You know, and the, and the pharma industry is throwing billions of dollars at this because they really know that if somebody gets in there, it's a massive growing market and all these things are un- unmet needs. Um, but despite that, there are a number of things that, that um, specialists can do to help basically slow down the rate of decline. So there are things to do with diet, about behavioral changes. There are some drugs which treat the symptoms which are effective at certain times in the disease. So these things combine and effectively slow the rate of decline, um, which basically extends the the useful or functional life of the individual. So, so, you know, what tends to happen at the moment is someone gets a late diagnosis, so they're like moderate to severe Alzheimer's. It causes a massive problem in terms of the administration of their estate, you know, it's a bombshell for the family, um, and they tend to end up in residential care quite quickly. And that is the really expensive part of healthcare provision is, is residential care. If you detect it much earlier, you can offset that that requirement for residential care by a significant amount of time. And this has really, really big financial implications for, for payer systems, right? So, so um, you know, whether it's, it's in the UK, but the NHS or in the US, it's insurance payer systems and so on. This is the expensive part. So even if you can delay that by a few years, um, that massively helps in terms of the cost. And, and in fact, the Alzheimer's Association last year produced a report which looked into the health economic benefits of early detection. And what they calculated was that um, if all the current people in the U.S. who have, have dementia were diagnosed early, the potential savings mm. to the payer system over the lifetime of all these patients is $7.9 trillion. So there's a massive economic oh, again, imperative to do this. Again, what would happen if you diagnosed early? You, you talk about residential care. That's what, a nurse coming into the home to care for the person so they don't have to uh, 
I guess, live in a nursing home? Or how would this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe some specifics. How would this save money, and why? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you delay the entry to this, these these residential um, care homes, um, that saves an awful lot of money. Um, so, what is actually done are, are behavioural changes, lifestyle changes, you know, mental exercise, and a certain amount of, of drugs will allow this to happen much later. This requirement for residential care. So, like I say, basically, you off, you, you increase the, the useful or the functional lifespan of the person. So, so this final decline into into where people can't really look after themselves is much less delayed. I got you. Okay, that makes sense. So, would, uh, how would cognitivity work? You know, if someone suspects that they may have a problem, what are the steps they go through with cognitivity? Sure. So, so what we developed is, is this cognitive testing platform, which which has a very simple um, premise at the heart of it. So basically, you're shown very short duration images, and you have to say something about the content of these images. Okay. Now, these are, in terms of experimental work, which we, which we published to date, um, are actually pretty good at picking up on what we call mild cognitive impairment. So this is the pre-symptomatic dementia phase. Now, um, MCI, as we call it, is really the kind of holy grail in terms of both um, treatment and clinical trials and also um, you know, in terms of detection. So you're picking up on people before they are um, demonstrating full-blown symptoms. Okay, now this happens you know, 10 to 15 years before before you're really showing, you know, coming up and being diagnosed as a, as a full-on Alzheimer's case, uh, patient. Um, so we, what's required then is that you take the test earlier. So what happens with our platform is that you are able to do this visual test on an iPad or on your phone, actually, you have to develop for it too, but um, primary clinical application is on an iPad. So the ideal situation would be that if you are, let's say, over 55 years in age, um, whenever you go to see your physician, you would be able to take this test, you know, um, in the same way that you would have a blood pressure test or a cholesterol test, the, the, the results would then be reported to your physician so that when they, they examine you, you go to your consultation, they're able to say, okay, well, you're in the normal range for cognitive function for someone of your age, okay? And if you aren't, then let's look into it. So what we would propose is that people are able to do this test on a regular basis, you know, um, if they're in a, an at-risk group, which is primarily an age factor, but there are other, other factors that you would think about. All right, so this test will evaluate uh, what the fact that they may have an issue or that they do have an issue um, what the, how detailed does the test get and does it distinguish between flavors of potential problems different types of dementia sure so uh, the, and the um the first application is really like i say like the blood pressure test in that it is not specific so we're not saying that you would do the test and then this you know a light would flash and it would report you as being an alzheimer's patient it would say that you're brain is not processing information in the way that we might expect. Now, there could be a myriad of reasons for that, uh, such as, you know, like I said, drunk or alcohol impaired, you've been uh, suffering from lack of sleep, you know, there, you could be uh, depressed, there could be other reasons for it. Um, so that allows the doctor then to make a clinical decision based on this in the context of everything else. So your cognitive function is not where it should be. Let's look into why. I can't explain it. Then I would send you to to be referred to a specialist to, to work out really why. So, I mean, this is kind of why what we offer is fits in pretty well into the, into the healthcare system, because it doesn't require a change in what people do. It just allows them to be a much more effective at doing it. Okay, so we basically replace this kind of ad hoc and insensitive way of detecting people with our, our platform, which is able to pick it up much, much earlier and with much greater um, degree of confidence that there is an issue. 
Okay. Um, so that's that's stage one. Now, where this goes ultimately is really in the data side. So, so we use um, AI in order to improve the training of our platform. So, um, we, as we grow our data set, i.e., we are able to measure the pattern of responses of people who um, who we know what category they're into, whether they're MCI patients, mild Alzheimer's patients, and so on. Look at the pattern of their responses, and then use our AI technology to say, okay, well, they could look like they're likely to be like this which then help the clinicians to make a diagnosis. Now, we can then train this platform with, with more and more data and also for different conditions. So not only would uh, we expect an Alzheimer's patient would be able to be, you know, we have a rough idea that this is maybe what the problem is, we can use it for other things. So we've done a study to NS already. Um, there are a number of other diseases or, or conditions that we might be able to do this with, you know, for example, concussion or or anything else that has a measure of cognitive impairment associated with it. This seems like a really uh, tough thing because, you know, it, it seems like you would need years and years and years of data to confirm that it actually is a signal and it can predict it. I mean, how do you go about something like that? How do you really know that it's working and how do you fine-tune it as well? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. So, so I mean, it, the, the data sets that you require in order to be able to say something about the... the um, Results that you're getting from the from the from the subject, um, and they don't have to be that big. It's really down to quality as much as anything else. So, so when we are looking at the characteristics of a, of a patient population, we would do very tightly controlled um, studies, basically, which have them taking our test, but also then we take other measures, uh, including a full clinical diagnosis by a specialist, but also other, you know, sensitive um, cognitive tests that, that we're able to do. So we're able to validate against not only general cognitive state, but then also against disease conditions. So, you know, the, the, in order to train the, the, the engines, you know, these, these data sets can be the order of, of hundreds rather than thousands of patients if the data are of a high quality. Right? So, so that, that's not too bad. But oh, so there, again, are, there are other ways to find early onset or early stage dementias, and that's why you're able to correlate what you're doing with those findings. That, that's right. So there are some what we would call gold standard tests. Um, so the, the one that we use quite often is a thing called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test. So this is a, an expert-administered 15-minute uh, cognitive test, which is considered to be, you know, all things considered, a pretty um, good example of what can currently be done. Now, um, we end up with a good relationship with that, but we don't end up with a perfect relationship with that, because if we had a perfect relationship with MOCA, then we'd be just doing what the MOCA does. Um, now, what we find is that when we get involved with much more um, involved testing. So, for example, um, there is a test called BICAMS, which is used in multiple sclerosis, which is a 25 to half, minute, half an hour test, um, which is very good at, at sort of uh, sensitive at kind of early stage impairment. And it takes a long time to administer, obviously, and it requires an expert to do it. Um, we find that the better the test is, the better our relationship is with it. Um, so, we correlate very, very well with the BICAMS, but our test takes less than five minutes and it doesn't need to be administered by an expert. So, you know, there are many ways that you can diagnose, even through to things like imaging. So, you know, you can use MRI scanning and so on to look at whether there's any structural damage in the brain. You can do biomarkers from, from spinal fluid. All these things are combined a very, very sure way of, of telling whether you've got, um, you know, a, a, for example, Alzheimer's or so a neurodegenerative disease. And they're extremely expensive. They're very invasive and they are not suitable for a wide population to be uh, to be administered to them. So that's where you end up if we're trying to work out what's wrong with you. But we want to make sure that we're only doing those tests on people that we are pretty sure we should be doing them to. Um, because what happens at the moment with referrals to specialists um, 
is that they tend to see two types of people. So our, our, our chief medical officer, he's a specialist in, in, in um, geriatric psychiatry. Now, he tends to see in his clinical practice two types of people. Either people who um, are really quite severely impaired, and it takes him you know, one minute to diagnose them, really. He knows he's got a problem. It's very apparent. It doesn't take a you know, massive amount of his expertise to work out what's wrong with them. Or he gets people who have, they've forgotten a few, maybe they've lost their keys a few times, or, you know, or, or, or they think they might have an issue. So this is a group of people we call the worried well. So they will insist on being referred to the specialist. So they'll go to see the specialist. The specialist will run the full um, sort of bank of tests on them and, and find that there's nothing wrong with them and they, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. So this kind of lack of efficiency is, is, is a very big expense in the system in that there are thousands of dollars worth of tests that need to be done in order to give someone the old fear. But if you're able to say that they are cognitively normal or functioning normally for roughly what you'd expect before they even get referred, then they don't need to be referred. You can reassure them at that point very cheaply. Um, what kinds of dementia or mental issues does your test seem to be good at and which ones is it weaker at versus the gold standard? Yeah, so so our test um, is actually very good at detecting the, the early stage stuff. So it, it, what our test does is it, it, it takes a very um, um, objective measure of how quickly your brain can process complicated information in a, in a timely and accurate fashion. Okay, so any condition that has a degree of cognitive impairment, our test will pick up on it because it's literally reporting how quickly you can you can deal with information, the complicated information. So it doesn't really have any weaknesses. I mean, its strengths are definitely um, in the fact that it seems to be, from the experimental work we've done, very good at picking up on these kind of early and small changes in people's cognition. Um, and actually, that's where the it needs to go. It, it is not hard to pick up on severe impairment. There are many ways to do that. that, that there's no lack of efficiency at that. It's really at the other end you want to go for. So, and, and that seems to be what our, our test is particularly adept at doing. Um, so, so that's good. And just another sort of point I'd like to make about that because I've talked um, about how we can compare a subject's results with populations that we know about. Um, so you can say, okay, well, for your age. Um, you are roughly in the normal range. So that's fine, and that has a, a very big role to play in diagnosis. When it gets particularly interesting is if you're able to work out where somebody performs relative to themselves. So our system is is, is very good for this because you set a baseline, you get a sort of a, a, session, a, a, a group of scores that you take on the test. And if you keep taking it periodically, it will tell you where you perform relative to yourself. So that's very useful in picking up on the really, really early stages because people make this within a range of a population. Um, but when you, you have your own range, which is much finer than that, much, much narrower than that. And that then allows you to do it against yourself. So that's when the thing gets really, really powerful. So if people are taking it regularly, mm, yeah. once you've taken it a few times, these small changes become apparent and the, and the engine is very good at picking up on those. So that's that's really where the great efficiencies are uh, in there. But, uh, you know, that's not to say that... Well, the there's a lot of... Uh, I can see there's a lot of confounding factors. I mean, does age play a role? If so, how so? Gender, uh, economic circumstance, um, training, education-wise, um, you know, time of day, what they ate. And then if you do repeated tests, you get better at the test. You know, like when people take a certain test, sometimes they tend to get better at it. They just get more used to that kind of test. So how do you eliminate all those factors to get a true reading 
Yeah, that's that's a very very good question. So I'll deal with the the getting better at the test thing first. So so that's actually one of the main differences that our test has with with others um, compared with others in that most tests um, show a learning effect. So if you were to do something like the mocker test or, or any of these traditional shall we say pen and paper tests that are used, as you do more of them, you get better at them. Okay, so that obviously masks any underlying um, trends that, that might be there. Now, with our test, the way that the visual information is processed means that the the question you're asked about the, the image that you saw, if you can't pull that out, you can never pull that out. So you can't learn this test. Either your brain can process it or it can't. Okay, so that means that um, in the experiments we've done for people doing it repeatedly, um, they show a very quickly reach a ceiling and then um, they, don't, they don't do better than that. So the, the test does not display any false positive scores, as it were. You can't get lucky on it, right? Um, so that's actually really, really important. And that goes through to, to the other factors that you mentioned. I mean, education is a really interesting point. So one of the biggest correlates of performance in uh, these, these cognitive tests is actually education, which is really independent of your cognitive function. It just shows that you are more comfortable taking a test. You're more, um, you know, used to this experience. Uh, so that the level of education always correlates very, very well with performance. And that is something, again, that is masking the true measure you're trying to look here is really how well do you process information, not how good are you at taking an exam. Um, and there are a number of other things. Language is a big has a big issue with this as well, in that if you're taking a test in English, but English is not your first language, you're going to score more poorly than a, than a native English speaker. Okay, this again is a big problem. So all these combined um, are, are really reasons why the kind of current testing landscape doesn't fulfil um, what it needs to do, which is the subjective testing. Now, our test does not use language at all. The only language you need is the instructions at the beginning, and then it's a purely visual test from there on. And we've shown that it doesn't have any cultural biases in terms of the report. So, so there are a number of, of, of basic um, design ways that we, we, we've done this, which, which deal with a lot of the problems of testing. Well, what's interesting is that if your test really is robust and good, which I'm sure it is, um, you can test other interventions that maybe people uh, can't test. You know, what if someone does your test and they show mild impairment and they go crazy doing crosswords or Sudoku or they take a class and, you know, whatever, and they decide to really work on their head, uh, they come back and maybe they test better. Maybe you'd see an effect like that. Or they yeah, change their diet. Maybe you see an effect like that. You know, maybe this is a um, a vehicle to do clinical trials for this types of things to improve people's lot without... Uh, you know, getting too crazy or spending millions of dollars to do so? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a, a very astute point. I mean, that's exactly how we see it as well. I mean, we believe that the tool will enable you to enable you to, to pick up on subtle changes. So if, if we look at um, some, like kind of an obvious example would be that if you go to see a specialist, they give you a course of treatment, and generally speaking, you would come back in, let's say, six weeks later. So this is a, a sort of a, a black hole in, in, in anybody's um, able, ability to see what's going on in the six weeks. If you were at home, you could take the test on a you know a daily or, or you know, twice weekly basis or something. There would be an ongoing record of how well you're responding to treatment. Okay, which which means that either it's going great and you do need to come back in, or it's going really badly. Let's bring you back in quick, more quickly. So that's from a, a from a you know a, a treatment side of things. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we are conducting studies internally that are looking into some of these subtle changes of, of things like sleep, you know, exercise, um, things like diet, and so on, because we really believe that the, the tool is very appropriate for that. And um, and and there's a, an awful lot of very inf interesting information to, to to come from studies like that. 
That's great. And what about the AI component? Um, are you just trying to hone in the tool and make it better? Are you trying to find more nuance in the types of dementia that people tend to show or the ways in which they fail to test? Yeah. So, 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 I mean, that's part of an ongoing effort for us is really to keep training this. So, so, um, you know, if we can learn to understand the patterns of responses and, and at levels of accuracy and speed and so on in people's response to the test, um, then we can match those different groups, like I said. So that's the kind of the kind of the superficial level or the base level for what we're doing. Um, just the point I'd make is, is it's not like you can fail the test. This, this test is it, it, it has a range of scores. So the test is actually necessarily very difficult. So nobody can get a full answer on this test. And that's really important in order to be able to pick up on the on the, the fine subtle changes or the very early stages of, of any sort of impairment. Um, but there, there's no such thing as failing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the base level for the, the AI is comparing you to known populations, as I discussed earlier. Um, the next level for that is actually including other measures. So, so things like you could include information from wearables, um, collect information on um, sleep patterns on your diet. And also there would be the potential to include other measures such as, um, you know, things in health records or, or, or other um, pieces of information that you could then make a much more involved model that would be better at predicting, um, you know, the early signs of any problem and be able to say something about what that might potentially be. Are there ways in which people um, perform poorly on the test that are varied? Are there ways that people perform well on it that are varied? I mean, does it I would think it doesn't just test for one thing, it tests for multiple aspects of cognition. So what kind of surprises or data or nuance have you seen in the testing and the results? Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't think there are any particular um, surprises in the data in that um, because of the way that the, 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 um, the test works on so it engages a really large amount of your brain in, in the task. I mean, that's really at the heart of what's so good about this is that it engages the visual cortex and then has to go to the prefrontal cortex to look for patterns, then it has to engage the motor cortex. And this is very, very important because engaging large numbers of, of, of brain cells in a single task is actually the way, best way to find sensitive um, results. But, um, but yeah, I don't think there's, there's any um, particular surprises in there. Um, what we think is interesting is, is Again, looking into other things it can detect. So, you know, as an example, let's look at concussion in sports. So, you know, a lot of, of the vast majority of, of light concussions in sport are not reported, but we believe these, will, these could show up on a, on a test like ours. Um, and then you could chart recovery and let you know when it's safe to return to action and so on like that. So I think the surprises actually may come in more the kind of impairment it pick up on um, rather than something like, you know, people perform more poorly than, poorly than you might expect under certain circumstances. But, you know, as, as, as our data sets grow and grow, um, there will be <laughs> undoubtedly some very interesting stories. Okay. Right. Well, um, well, I'll see you right at the end. But uh, very good. So what, what do you see is happening over the next six months or a year or maybe even two years? Where is the platform going? What are your hopes or goals or metrics for it? Yeah. So, so I mean, one of the main things that we're working on at the moment is really the, our, 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 our regulatory studies. So what's important or necessary when you go to have a, a product or medical device or, or software or whatever that is to be used in a clinical environment, i.e. by doctors, you have to do um, clinical validation. And that's really dealing with the FDA. So we are currently ongoing through a trial, which will allow us to submit to the FDA to allow the platform to be used in clinical environments, so, so used by doctors. So that, that's an ongoing process. You know, we would expect that would, you know, um, hopefully complete around the end of the year. 
Um, we're also doing something quite exciting, though, in that we signed a, a, an agreement with a company um, a few months ago, which is to do um, health monitoring um, for for insurance customers, basically. So the idea is is that if you are able to monitor your ongoing performance in terms of your health, so this is you know obvious things like your weight and, and so on, um, but you know measuring your your heart rate and sleeping patterns and so on. Um, we have brought to the table this idea that you can have a cognitive module in there, which will allow people for the first time to say something meaningful about their cognitive their brain health. Okay, and that's something that we're, we're going to be going to market with them pretty soon, um, and that's actually really exciting because there is a, a you know a strong body of evidence that says that if people are in control of their own health by able to measure it and be able to see the impacts of things they do day, day in day out on their health then their behaviors improve, you know, they, they tend to be more healthy. Um, so we're really excited to be part of that, and that's going to generate a, a massive amount of really interesting data where we're able to relate cognitive function to these other measures and um, and really look into large populations of people who will do the test regularly on a day-in, day-in basis. And these are healthy people, so um, it's going to be really interesting. So we're very excited about that. And then just above and beyond that, we're really well, going one, to expand uh, one, our... One, one, uh, one warning for that, you know, if you want people to do it more than once, Obviously, it has to be gamified, but obviously, they have to. There has to be a mechanism by which they can improve themselves. Otherwise, it's like weighing yourself every day, and you'll just you could be depressed about it. You know, it's low one day, and then it goes back to normal. And why was it low? And they worry about that. So, I think there needs to be a mechanism for it to go higher, not just lower, or stay same. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely, and, and that's that's what it does. I mean, if we're talking about people being able to measure their own cognitive function, this would be relative to themselves, and of course, it, it can it can go both ways. There, there isn't any any doubt about that. Um, what it does is it allows people to see the impact of, of what they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly it. And I think that the I think that the, the way that people engage with the platform is is very important with that. And it's interesting you mentioned gamification of it. That's that's an element which helps to you know encourage people to do it. What we actually find um, anecdotally is, is that people tend to enjoy doing the task, but actually when you add a, a small element of competition into it, it becomes quite, quite, quite interesting. And that people try very hard to, you know, to, to show their um, their cognitive performance is, is, is good. And, and that actually brings the best out in terms of the data we get, because the harder people try, the, the better the quality of the data and the more consistent people become. So, uh, so yeah, I think the gamification has a, has a role to play in that. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more? Um, absolutely. Come go to the website cognitivity.com. Um, we are we're we're um, a public company, so if people are interested, they can they can get involved in the stock. And but yeah, absolutely, the website is a great place to start. And uh, yeah, we'd be very interested to hear from people who who find us interesting. Well, Tom, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, 
Please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.